So what I have here in my hot little hands this morning is the, the characters to the manger scene uh, that we usually put up, put up during our Christmas Eve service. Uh, that is when we can hold our Christmas Eve service indoors. If you've ever been to one of these services, then you might remember that as we tell the Christmas story through scripture and through song, one at a time we have little ones from the congregation come forward and set the pieces to this nativity scene up on a little table that we have set here, such that by the end of the service, when we're lighting our candles and singing Silent Night, we have a full tableau of what the birth of Jesus Christ probably didn't look like, but how we imagine that it looked like. So I'm still a little bit in the Christmas spirit, so I just, just thought I would set this out for us this morning. Uh, we, of course, have the star of the show, little nine-pound, ten-ounce baby Jesus, right there. He stands in the center of everything. We, of course, have his parents, Mary, and then Joseph, who usually are on either side of him, just like that. Uh, for good measure, to remember that Jesus was born in the stable, we have a, a donkey friend right there. Uh, we have a, a shepherd, a shepherd who, remember, was watching o'er his flocks at night. He's right over here. And uh, his little, little sheep friend right here. We have, we have we have an angel, an angel who came to those shepherds bearing great news, of, or rather good tidings of great joy to those shepherds, announcing Jesus' birth unto them. And then last but not least, we have the protagonist of this morning's story, the three wise men who come bearing gifts of frankincense, myrrh, and gold, or as one rye observer put it, two poisons and a choking hazard for the little baby Jesus. Right there, the wise men. And we can't forget their little camel friend who plays a big role in our Christmas pageant every year. Right there. We have it all off pretty far. Voila, voila. We have before us a tableau of the birth of Jesus Christ. And you will find similar such scenes at churches and at the homes of the Christian devout throughout the world. As a matter of fact, in my own living room, Sarah and I have a, a little crash scene uh, on our, our, our uh, coffee table made out of carved wood that we got from 10,000 villages. Does anybody else have a nativity scene at their house? A couple people, yeah, a couple people. Anybody on Zoom have, oh, I've seen some hands on Zoom as well. Yeah, of course you do. Of course we do, right? A depiction of Jesus Christ's birth set out at Christmas time. How much more Christian can you possibly get? Well, it turns out a good deal more Christian. Because this is by no means a profound observation, but it is an observation nonetheless. Uh, but none of the characters in this scene are actually Christian. Right? We have, have the little baby Jesus, but at this point in his life, he is less concerned about articulating the ins and outs of the gospel than he is uh, about when he's next going to eat and take a nap and get his diaper changed. Uh, and then we have his parents, Mary 
Joseph, who are devout, devout Jews. Right? They, they do their best to keep the laws of Moses. They go to the temple on all the high holy days. We have the shepherd over here, and the shepherd is what we would have to call just nominally Jewish. And I say that because the work of the shepherd uh, caused them to be ritually impure, which precluded them from participating in the communal rituals of the Jewish faith. So they were kind of on the outskirts. Uh, they're a bit of outcasts, really. Uh, it's a well-established fact at this point that, that sheep and donkeys and camels are agnostics. And then, of course, we have the wise men. The wise men. And not only are the wise men not Christian, but they're not even Jewish. Rather, the wise men, they are Zoroastrian. And not only, though, are, are they, they just adherents of the Zoroastrian faith, but it turns out they are actually priests of the Zoroastrian and how do we know that? We know that because the word that we translate as wise men, magi, actually comes from Persian and is a title reserved for, you guessed it, Zoroastrian priests. Now, my guess is that most of us don't know a lot about Zoroastrianism, and that makes a good deal of sense because there's not actually a lot of them left in the world today. Uh, the world over, there's only about 200,000 people who practice the Zoroastrian faith. In the United States, there's only, I think, about 12,000 people. So chances are you've never even met a person uh, of this religion. However, it was not always so. Because for 1,000 years, Zoroastrianism was the official state religion of the Persian Empire. And the Persian emperor, Cyrus the Great, Scholars believe that it was his Zoroastrian faith that caused him to decree that Jews could return from their exile and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So even though you might not realize it, Zoroastrianism played a huge role in the history of humankind. But because we have this, this melange of religions going on in this nativity scene, uh, I thought it might be helpful for us to take a little pop quiz, uh, to kind of keep our eye on the prize here and remember who is who, what's important in this story. Uh, so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read you a set of statements. And when I'm done reading this set of statements, I need you to just tell me who it is that I'm talking about. That makes sense? Okay, we're on the same page. Pop quiz, first pop quiz of 2022. Here we go. Number one, he was immaculately conceived and born of a virgin. Number two, he was baptized in a river. Number three, in his youth, he astounded even learned adults with his wisdom. Number four, he was tempted in the wilderness by the devil. Number five, he began his ministry at the age of 30. Number six, he baptized his followers with water, fire, and holy winds. Number seven, he cast out demons and restored sight to the blind. Number eight, he taught about resurrection, judgment, salvation, and apocalypse. And last but not least, number nine, he is heralded by his followers as the word made flesh. I am talking, of course, about... Oh. Well, okay. I, I see how you were likely confused there. Um, 
but I was actually talking about Zoroaster, the founding prophet of the Zoroastrian faith. Zoroaster, who lived at least 600, if not 2,000 years before the birth of Christ. All those statements I just read to you are beliefs that Zoroastrians hold about the founder of their religion. So to be sure, there are some parallels between what Zoroastrians believe about their Zoroaster and what we Christians believe about our Christ. And, and if those similarities cause you a little bit of discomfort, right? If they you feel uneasy, you're wondering, hey, what's going on here? I thought our religion was 100% unique. I don't understand this. Is the pastor suggesting that, that Christianity is some sort of bootleg Zoroastrianism? If you're feeling discomfort or uneasiness at all, good. I, I want you to sit with that, that discomfort for just a moment. Sit with that uneasiness just a second. Because what those feelings are, are doing is that they are, they're telling us something real about the Christmas story. They're shedding light on an aspect of the story that we almost never talk about. Because what we have going on in the story of the wise men is we have foreign priests of a foreign religion uh, that, that is strikingly similar to Christianity. And we have them coming to visit the newborn baby Jesus. And while this very easily right, could be a moment uh, of intense inter-religious tension, right? while it would be easy for us to imagine uh, the wise men wanting to conspire with King Herod to snuff out the baby Jesus because the faith that he represents, right, is a faith that is in, in direct competition with their own faith. That is not what we find in this story at all, is it? No, no, what we see in this story is the wise men coming from afar at great expense and at great personal risk to welcome and pay honor to this newborn baby whose birth was foretold in the stars. And this morning's story tells us that, that when they arrived, they fell on their knees and they paid him his, they paid Jesus their reverence and their worship. And then conversely, right, the, the Holy Family warmly welcomed these foreign priests of a foreign religion into where they were to stay. They gladly received their gifts. And when it came time for the wise men to head home, they were warned by God, presumably our God, in a dream that it was not safe to return to Herod. So they returned to their homeland via a different route. Mind you, they returned to their homeland unconverted. They were just as Zoroastrian uh, when they left as when they came. And I want you to bear in mind, friends, this is the founding story of our religion. This is where it all begins. Now, I don't know about 
you, but, but when I go to a religion's founding story, well, whatever religion it is, what I expect to find there is a lot of rigidity, right? A lot of narrowness, a lot of closed offness. When I go to the founding story of a religion, what I expect to find is that that story is one that will only be accessible to the people who, who follow that faith. That is not what we find in this story, in our story. What we find in our story is this profound, profound openness and welcome and love. Amen? Now, I don't know if you guys remember uh, about a decade ago as we were approaching the 10-year anniversary of 9-11. Uh, there was this huge national debate slash controversy that broke out. Because several groups of American Muslims had got together, remember, uh, and they wanted to build a community center and mosque near the, the, the site of Ground Zero. Uh, and at the time, th this story made the news every night for weeks and weeks and weeks. And every politician in the country, up to and including President Obama, uh, were weighing in with their opinions uh, on whether this was a good idea, whether this was a wise thing to do. And at, at the same time as all these politicians were weighing in with their opinions on this controversy, uh, there were two pastors in two different parts uh, of the country uh, that also wanted to be part of this conversation, each in their own way. The first pastor was a guy by the name of Terry Jones. Terry Jones was the, the pastor of Dove World Outreach Center in Gainesville, Florida. Uh, and if you can't already tell from a church name like that, they, it was a rabidly conservative church, a fringe evangelical church. Uh, and Pastor Terry Jones met, made headlines when he started planning uh, an international burn of Quran day. Do you remember this guy? And after receiving global condemnation from world leaders uh, and numerous death threats, uh, he canceled his event, uh, not out of fear, mind you. He wants you to know he did not cancel it out of fear, but rather because his points had already been proven. Uh, what that point is, or was, no one is exactly clear on, uh, even Pastor Jones himself, and I think we're better off that. But around about that same time, 722 miles northwest of Gainesville, Florida, in the town of Memphis, Tennessee, there was another pastor, a pastor by the name of Steve Stone. He was the pastor of Heartsong United Methodist Church. And at the same time that Yorkers were learning that a group of Muslims wanted to create a community center and a mosque near the site of Ground Zero, Pastor Stone learned that a Muslim community had purchased the land across from his church to build the same, a community center and a mosque. Now this Muslim community in Memphis, Tennessee, led by a Dr. Bashar Shalab, they were not living with their head in the sands, sand weather. 
Since 9-11, they had experienced all sorts of anti-Muslim hate and anti-Muslim sentiment. They knew that this was a moment of intense inter-religious tension in the United States. And so their greatest hope for their building projects was that it would go unnoticed. They weren't wanting to make a point about the freedom of the religion in the United States. They just wanted to be left alone, left to themselves, because they just wanted to build a house of worship. That's it. But it is sad to say they did not get their wish. Because what Pastor Steve Stone did over at Heartsong United Methodist Church was he went and he had printed a six by three banner. He had this giant banner printed and set out right in front of the church directly across from the property that this Muslim community had purchased right there on the main drag where every car passing by could see it as they drove by in the morning on their commutes. And this sign, it said, Heart Song Church welcomes the Memphis Islamic Center to the neighborhood. Now, Dr. Shalai and his community, they were shocked and surprised and quite frankly, dumbfounded because the best they were hoping for was antipathy. And what did they find instead? Profound openness and welcome. Now tell me, which of these two church communities, which of these two pastors got it right? Which of these two churches cleave most closely to the witness and the example of Jesus Christ himself in the Christmas story, the founding story of our faith? Without a doubt, hands down, it was Pastor Stone in Heartsong Methodist. But, if I'm going to be completely honest with you, I would have to tell you that not every member of Heartsong UMC was gung-ho about this outreach and this welcome that Pastor Stone was extending. And there was actually a group of folk who were considering leaving the church. Uh, so, so they went to, to go consult with the pastor. And when, when church folks say consult, it usually means present their pastor with an ultimatum. Uh, obviously, their ultimatum was, stop what you're doing or we're leaving your church. And you know what Mr. <laughs> or Pastor Stone's response to them was? And this is the kind, of the kind of pastoring that I aspire to. He said this. He said, read the Gospels. That's it. That's all he told them. And to their eternal credit, the members of this group, they went and they actually did it. They actually went back to their Bibles and read the Gospels. They read the stories about Jesus' birth, about his ministry, about his miracles, about his death, about his resurrection. And upon returning to the Bible and reading those stories, the conclusion they ground to was, as one of the members of this group put it, I figured out I was the problem. With everything going on in the world today, all the hate and the violence and the fear, 
I, I was the problem. Which is all to say, friends, which is all to say, we here in the United States, we live in a free country where you are free to hate whomever you want. You are free to hate Zoroastrians. You are free to hate Muslims. You are free to hate gays and transgender people. You are free to hate people of different skin colors than yours. You're free to hate homeless people and refugees and immigrants and people who make less money than you and people who make more money than you. You are free in this country to hate whomever you want. That's fact. But even here in these United States, what you are not free to do is claim that that hatred came from your Christian faith. Because what we find in the founding story of our faith, the Christian of Christian stories, what we find is not hate, but profound, profound openness and welcome and love. And if you can't get behind that, if you can't accept that, um, go read the Gospels, and then we'll talk. In Jesus' name.